Section 50 of Volume 1B of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wendy Almeida. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1b, Section 50, Chapter 21, Part 3. Even the smallest accident, without any formed design, was sufficient in the present disposition of men's minds to dissolve the seeming harmony between the parties and had the intentions of the leaders been ever so amicable they would have found it difficult to restrain the animosity of their followers one of the king's retinue insulted one of the earl of warwick's their companions on both sides took part in the quarrel a fierce combat ensued the earl apprehended his life to be aimed at he fled to his government of calais and both parties in every county of england openly made preparations for deciding the contest by war and arms the earl of salisbury marching to join the duke of york was overtaken at blore heath on the borders of staffordshire by lord audley who commanded much superior forces and a small rivulet with steep banks ran between the armies salisbury here supplied his defect in numbers by stratagem a refinement of which there occur few instances in the english civil wars where a headlong courage more than military conduct is commonly to be remarked he feigned a retreat and allured audley to follow him with precipitation but when the van of the royal army had passed the brook salisbury suddenly turned upon them and partly by the surprise partly by the division of the enemy's forces put this body to rout the example of flight was followed by the rest of the army and salisbury obtaining a complete victory reached the general rendezvous of the yorkists at ludlow the Earl of Warwick brought over to this rendezvous a choice body of veterans from Calais, on whom it was thought the fortune of the war would much depend. But this reinforcement occasioned in the issue the immediate ruin of the Duke of York's party. When the royal army approached and a general action was every hour expected, Sir Andrew Trollope, who commanded the veterans, deserted to the king in the night-time and the yorkists were so dismayed at this instance of treachery which made every man suspicious of his fellow that they separated next day without striking a stroke the duke fled to ireland the earl of warwick attended by many of the other leaders escaped to calais where his great popularity among all orders of men particularly among the military soon drew to him partisans and rendered his power very formidable the friends of the house of york in england kept themselves everywhere in readiness to rise on the first summons from their leaders after meeting with some successes at sea warwick landed in kent with the earl of salisbury and the earl of marche eldest son of the duke of york 
and being met by the primate by lord cobham and other persons of distinction he marched amidst the acclamations of the people to london the city immediately opened its gates to him and his troops increasing on every day's march he soon found himself in a condition to face the royal army which hastened from coventry to attack him the battle was fought at northampton and was soon decided against the royalists by the infidelity of lord grey of ruthyn who commanding henry's van deserted to the enemy during the heat of action and spread a consternation through the troops the duke of buckingham the earl of shrewsbury the lords beaumont and egremont and sir william lucy were killed in the action or pursuit the slaughter fell chiefly on the gentry and nobility the common people were spared by orders of the earls of warwick and marche henry himself that empty shadow of a king was again taken prisoner and as the innocence and simplicity of his manners which bore the appearance of sanctity had procured him the tender regard of the people the earl of warwick and the other leaders took care to distinguish themselves by their respectful demeanour towards him a parliament was summoned in the king's name and met at westminster where the duke soon after appeared from ireland this prince had never hitherto advanced openly any claim to the crown he had only complained of ill ministers and demanded a redress of grievances and even in the present crisis when the parliament was surrounded by his victorious army he showed such a regard to law and liberty as is unusual during the prevalence of a party in any civil dissensions and was still less to be expected in those violent and licentious times he advanced towards the throne and being met by the archbishop of canterbury who asked him whether he had yet paid his respects to the king he replied that he knew of none to whom he owed that title he then stood near the throne and addressing himself to the house of peers he gave them a deduction of his title by descent mentioned the cruelties by which the house of lancaster had paved their way to sovereign power insisted on the calamities which had attended the government of henry exhorted them to return into the right path by doing justice to the lineal successor and thus pleaded his cause before them as his natural and legal judges this cool and moderate manner of demanding a crown intimidated his friends and encouraged his enemies the lords remained in suspense and no one ventured to utter a word on the occasion richard who had probably expected that the peers would have invited him to place himself on the throne was much disappointed at their silence but desiring them to reflect on what he had proposed to them he departed the house the peers took the matter into consideration with as much tranquillity as if it had been a common subject of debate they desired the assistance of some considerable members among the commons in their deliberations they heard in several successive days the reasons alleged for the duke of york they even ventured to propose objections to his claim founded on former entails of the crown and on the oaths of fealty sworn to the house of lancaster 
they also observed that as richard had all along borne the arms of york not those of clarence he could not claim as successor to the latter family and after receiving answers to these objections derived from the violence and power by which the house of lancaster supported their present possession of the crown they proceeded to give a decision their sentence was calculated as far as possible to please both parties they declared the title of the duke of york to be certain and indefeasible but in consideration that henry had enjoyed the crown without dispute or controversy during the course of thirty-eight years they determined that he should continue to possess the title and dignity during the remainder of his life that the administration of the government meanwhile should remain with richard that he should be acknowledged the true and lawful heir of the monarchy that every one should swear to maintain his succession and it should be treason to attempt his life and that all former settlements of the crown in this and the last two reigns should be abrogated and rescinded the duke acquiesced in this decision henry himself being a prisoner could not oppose it even if he had enjoyed his liberty he would not probably have felt any violent reluctance against it and the act thus passed with the unanimous consent of the whole legislative body though the mildness of this compromise is chiefly to be ascribed to the moderation of the duke of york it is impossible not to observe in those transactions visible marks of a higher regard to law and of a more fixed authority enjoyed by parliament than has appeared in any former period of english history it is probable that the duke without employing either menaces or violence could have obtained from the commons a settlement more consistent and uniform but as many if not all the members of the upper house had received grants concession or dignities during the last sixty years when the house of lancaster was possessed of the government they were afraid of invalidating their own titles by too sudden and violent an overthrow of that family and in thus temporizing between the parties they fixed the throne on a basis upon which it could not possibly stand the duke apprehending his chief danger to arise from the genius and spirit of queen margaret sought a pretence for banishing her the kingdom he sent her in the king's name a summons to come immediately to london intending in case of her disobedience to proceed to extremities against her but the queen needed not this menace to excite her activity in defending the rights of her family after the defeat at northampton she had fled with her infant son to durham thence to scotland but soon returning she applied to the northern barons and employed every motive to procure their assistance her affability insinuation and address qualities in which she excelled her caresses her promises wrought a powerful effect on every one who approached her the admiration of her great qualities was succeeded by compassion towards her helpless condition the nobility of that quarter who regarded themselves as the most warlike in the kingdom were moved by indignation to find the southern barons pretend to dispose of the crown and settle the government 
and that they might allure the people to their standard they promised them the spoils of all the provinces on the other side of the trent by these means the queen had collected an army twenty thousand strong with a celerity which was neither expected by her friends nor apprehended by her enemies the duke of york informed of her appearance in the north hastened thither with a body of five thousand men to suppress as he imagined the beginnings of an insurrection when on his arrival at wakefield he found himself so much outnumbered by the enemy he threw himself into sandal castle which was situated in the neighbourhood and he was advised by the earl of salisbury and other prudent counsellors to remain in that fortress till his son the earl of marche who was levying forces in the borders of wales could advance to his assistance but the duke though deficient in political courage possessed personal bravery in an eminent degree and notwithstanding his wisdom and experience he thought that he should be forever disgraced if by taking shelter behind walls he should for a moment resign the victory to a woman he descended into the plain and offered battle to the enemy which was instantly accepted the great inequality of numbers was sufficient alone to decide the victory but the queen by sending a detachment who fell on the back of the duke's army rendered her advantage still more certain and undisputed the duke himself was killed in the action and as his body was found among the slain the head was cut off by margaret's orders and fixed on the gates of york with a paper crown upon it in derision of his pretended title his son, the Earl of Rutland, a youth of seventeen, was brought to Lord Clifford, and that barbarian, in revenge of his father's death, who had perished in the Battle of St. Albans, murdered in cool blood and with his own hands this innocent prince, whose exterior figure, as well as other accomplishments, are represented by historians as extremely amiable the earl of salisbury was wounded and taken prisoner and immediately beheaded with several other persons of distinction by martial law at pomfret there fell near three thousand yorkists in this battle the duke himself was greatly and justly lamented by his own party a prince who merited a better fate and whose errors in conduct proceeded entirely from such qualities as render him the more an object of esteem and affection he perished in the fiftieth year of his age and left three sons edward george and richard with three daughters anne elizabeth and margaret the queen after this important victory divided her army she sent the smaller division under Jasper Tudor, Earl of Pembroke, half-brother to the king, against Edward, the new Duke of York. She herself marched with the larger division towards London, where the Earl of Warwick had been left with the command of the Yorkists. Pembroke was defeated by Edward at Mortimer's Cross in Herefordshire, with the loss of near four thousand men. His army was dispersed. He himself escaped by flight, but his father sir owen tudor was taken prisoner and immediately beheaded by edward's orders this barbarous practice being once begun was continued by both parties from a spirit of revenge 
which covered itself under the pretense of retaliation margaret compensated this defeat by a victory which she obtained over the earl of warwick that nobleman on the approach of the lancastrians led out his army reinforced by a strong body of the londoners who were affectionate to his cause and he gave battle to the queen at st albans while the armies were warmly engaged lovelace who commanded a considerable body of the yorkists withdrew from the combat and this treacherous conduct of which there are many instances in those civil wars decided the victory in favour of the queen about two thousand three hundred of the vanquished perished in the battle and pursuit and the person of the king fell again into the hands of his own party this weak prince was sure to be almost equally a prisoner whichever faction had the keeping of him and scarce any more decorum was observed by one than by the other in their method of treating him lord bonville to whose care he had been entrusted by the yorkists remained with him after the defeat on assurances of pardon given him by henry but margaret regardless of her husband's promise immediately ordered the head of that nobleman to be struck off by the executioner sir thomas curiel a brave warrior who had signalized himself in the french wars was treated in the same manner the queen made no great advantage of this victory young edward advanced upon her from the other side and collecting the remains of warwick's army was soon in a condition of giving her battle with superior forces she was sensible of her danger while she lay between the enemy and the city of london and she found it necessary to retreat with her army to the north edward entered the capital amidst the acclamations of the citizens and immediately opened a new scene to his party this prince in the bloom of youth remarkable for the beauty of his person for his bravery his activity his affability and every popular quality found himself so much possessed of public favor that elated with the spirit natural to his age he resolved no longer to confine himself within those narrow limits which his father had prescribed to himself and which had been found by experience so prejudicial to his cause he determined to assume the name and dignity of king to insist openly on his claim and thenceforth to treat the opposite party as traitors and rebels to his lawful authority but as a national consent or the appearance of it still seemed notwithstanding his plausible title requisite to precede this bold measure and as the assembling of a parliament might occasion too many delays and be attended with other inconveniences he ventured to proceed in a less regular manner and to put it out of the power of his enemies to throw obstacles in the way of his elevation his army was ordered to assemble in st john's fields great numbers of people surrounded them an harangue was pronounced to this mixed multitude setting forth the title of edward and inveighing against the tyranny and usurpation of the rival family and the people were then asked whether they would have henry of lancaster for king they unanimously exclaimed against the proposal it was then demanded whether they would accept of edward eldest son of the late duke of york they expressed their assent by loud and joyful acclamations 
a great number of bishops lords magistrates and other persons of distinction were next assembled at baynard's castle who ratified the popular election and the new king was on the subsequent day proclaimed in london by the title of edward the fourth in this manner ended the reign of henry the sixth a monarch who while in his cradle had been proclaimed king both of france and england and who began his life with the most splendid prospects that any prince in europe had ever enjoyed the revolution was unhappy for his people as it was the source of civil wars but was almost entirely indifferent to henry himself who was utterly incapable of exercising his authority and who provided he personally met with good usage was equally easy as he was equally enslaved in the hands of his enemies and of his friends his weakness and his disputed title were the chief causes of the public calamities but whether his queen and his ministers were not also guilty of some great abuses of power it is not easy for us at this distance of time to determine there remain no proofs on record of any considerable violation of the laws except in the assassination of the duke of gloucester which was a private crime formed no precedent and was but too much of a piece with the usual ferocity and cruelty of the times the most remarkable law which passed in this reign was that for the due election of members of parliament in counties after the fall of the feudal system the distinction of tenures was in some measure lost and every freeholder as well those who held of mesny lords as the immediate tenants of the crown were by degrees admitted to give their votes at elections this innovation for such it may probably be esteemed was indirectly confirmed by a law of henry the fourth which gave right to such a multitude of electors as was the occasion of great disorder in the eighth and tenth of this king therefore laws were enacted limiting the electors to such as possessed forty shillings a year in land free from all burdens within the county this sum was equivalent to near twenty pounds a year of our present money and it were to be wished that the spirit as well as letter of this law had been maintained the preamble of the statute is remarkable whereas the elections of knights have of late in many counties of england been made by outrageous and excessive numbers of people many of them of small substance and value yet pretending to a right equal to the best knights and esquires whereby manslaughters riots batteries and divisions among the gentlemen and other people of the same counties shall very likely rise and be unless due remedy be provided in this behalf etc we may learn from these expressions what an important matter the election of a member of parliament was now become in england that assembly was beginning in this period to assume great authority the commons had it much in their power to enforce the execution of the laws and if they failed of success in this particular it proceeded less from any exorbitant power of the crown than from the licentious spirit of the aristocracy and perhaps from the rude education of the age and their own ignorance of the advantages resulting from a regular administration of justice 
when the Duke of York, the Earls of Salisbury and Warwick, fled the kingdom upon the desertion of their troops, a Parliament was summoned at Coventry in 1460, by which they were all attainted. This Parliament seems to have been very irregularly constituted, and scarcely deserves the name, insomuch that an act passed in it, that all such knights of any county as were returned by virtue of the king's letters without any other election should be valid and that no sheriff should for returning them incur the penalty of the statute of henry the fourth all the acts of that parliament were afterwards reversed because it was unlawfully summoned and the knights and barons not duly chosen the parliaments in this reign instead of relaxing their vigilance against the usurpations of the court of rome endeavoured to enforce the former statutes enacted for that purpose the commons petitioned that no foreigner should be capable of any church preferment and that the patron might be allowed to present anew upon the non-residence of any incumbent but the king eluded these petitions Pope Martin wrote him a severe letter against the statute of provisors, which he calls an abominable law that would infallibly damn everyone who observed it. The Cardinal of Winchester was legate, and as he was also a kind of prime minister and immensely rich from the profits of his clerical dignities, the Parliament became jealous lest he should extend the papal power and they protested that the cardinal should absent himself in all affairs and councils of the king whenever the pope or see of rome was touched upon permission was given by parliament to export corn when it was at low prices wheat at six shillings and eightpence a quarter money of that age barley at three shillings and fourpence it appears from these prices that corn still remained at near half its present value though other commodities were much cheaper the inland commerce of corn was also opened in the eighteenth of the king by allowing any collector of the customs to grant a license of carrying it from one county to another the same year a kind of navigation act was proposed with regard to all places within the straits but the king rejected it the first instance of debt contracted upon parliamentary security occurs in this reign the commencement of this pernicious practice deserves to be noted a practice the more likely to become pernicious the more a nation advances in opulence and credit the ruinous effects of it are now become apparent and threaten the very existence of the nation end of section fifty chapter twenty one Part 3